Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. This week's guest, Manny Wolf. Manny, how are you, my man? Doing good, man. How are you? Very good. Uh, I've done a fair bit of work with this man this year. He's helped me with uh, marketing and, and a number of different things. But the thing that I, I really get out of the sessions, the uh, group sessions that we have, is, is I laugh. Like one of the things from leaving corporate was missing that group where you get together and laugh. And I tell you, like, I just love your sense of humor, Manny. What, where did that, where did that sense of humor come from? And oh. just, like, it's obscure, right? I like obscure humor. Where did that yeah. come from? You think? Man, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a reflect. It's tough to answer a question like that without sort of sounding falsely self-deprecating. You know? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, uh, this is the same, but more refined version of who I've always been. It really is. And it wasn't always met with, you know, uh, uh, warmth or appreciation, but it's, it's, it's an externalizing of, of how I process information, how I see the world. Probably since we're talking about grief, probably with a fair amount of, um, uh, learning how to create levity through humor because, you know, of um, tough situations and lots of them. I think that was one of my um, one of my strategies growing up. One of my strategies as a kid was get funny fast. Yeah, and, and you're right. I think that we deal with grief in our own unique way and thinking about it now as you say that is that's one of my go-to strategies too, right? whether it's yeah. an avoidance or a way to bring warmth to other people or at least attempt to, but being able to laugh things off, it's probably why, uh, mm. why some of the more obscure references that you, that you talk about um, I laugh at. Actually, I have to share this, Manny. So we, for those who, to, to catch up, uh, I was talking about how we view Volvo drivers in, uh, in Australia on <laughs> <laughs> the most recent call, uh, Manny being a Volvo driver, and we were just talking about the expression that we may use for a Volvo driver if they drive past. Um, I had two in front of me the other day, Manny, and I, as I <laughs> swore at them, I, I even got my son to take a photo of the cars. <laughs> uh, very good. So well, where did we go from here? Go, at, go on. At least I hope they weren't driving the nice ones. You know, if they're driving the old ones, so we could maybe we could maybe shed some light on that whole thing. At least from a a um, uh, west side of the United States, 
Western Hemisphere perspective, there are definitely two kinds of Volvo drivers. There really are. Maybe yeah. maybe three subsets. I'm in the minority, right? Um, they, uh, I, I, I drive mine fairly fast. Yeah, it, it's, you'd, it's you'd got, be in the minority here for sure. Yeah. <laughs> It's got a lot of power because it's a hybrid. And so it's got that electric motor too. And yeah. so I, I don't know how you guys measure power in, in Australia, but is it horsepower? Is that like a global, globally accepted way yeah, of thinking yeah. of it? So I got 400 horsepower in that thing. And and it's like a boat, but it handles really well. And it's like really big. It's anyway, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> growing up, Volvos were... Here's how they here's how they would work, Ian. Over overeducated, super liberal, like usually like college professors would buy Volvos, and and that's that fine. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. about right. <laughs> and they drive them for about twenty years. Then they'd give them to their kids as their kids went off to college. After filling their kids with twenty years worth of their own doctrine of the world. <laughs> <laughs> and so the kids would then take the Volvos and cover the backs of them with bumper stickers that were like revolutionary, you know, like <laughs> scathing indictments of capitalism, like, you know, kill your TV and and uh, what liberal bias in the news and, and bumper stickers like that. And uh, so for the longest time, that was my experience of them was like, oh, God, they're all 20 years old. They're all driven by these these kids that, you know. They're acting like hippies. They don't know what a real hippie is. And uh, and they clearly have wealthy parents. And then at one point, I needed a car. And my dad said to me, um, I've, got a, I've got a car you can buy. And I said, okay. And it was a Volvo 740 wagon. Or not wagon, sedan. And it had a turbo on it. So he says, test drive it. So I'm test driving it. He says, now hit the turbo button. And I was like, whoa. And, uh, you know, say whatever else you will about them. They're beautifully engineered and they drive like a dream. They really yeah. do. Yeah, um, yeah. So it, it's, it's, uh, it's too bad they got co-opted by a certain group of people. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, it's perception more than probably reality. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's yeah. one of those things that tends to stick, mm-hmm. and uh, it's certainly been the case here. But so thank you for filling us in on that. Yes, there is something about speed, raw speed. It's something nice um... about it. It's like I, I part of me wants to feel like I've I've grown past that and I'm more mature than that, but nah. it's just not the case. Nah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Not at all. Uh, all right. You, you mentioned uh, the hippie aspect. Good lead in. So you, 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 when I was asking you about those sort of defining moments from your life and you were saying yeah. you, you pretty much lived in a hippie cult. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much lived in a hippie cult. Um, we, God, I don't even know where to start with that. There were 60 or 70 of us at the biggest when it was at its, at its peak. Uh, we live very, very close to the legendary corner of Hayton Ashbury in San Francisco, or I guess technically on the border of San Francisco and Berkeley, um, hate street goes right down to UC Berkeley. So it it was, and it was, it was a fascinating time and a fascinating place until we left. Cause when we lived there, we, we blended in perfectly, you know, uh, 
we had Jefferson Starship living right down the street. Well, there were Jefferson Airplane back then. We had uh, Janis Joplin had a house near us. But you know what I mean? It was just uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company and, and other like 60s and 70s seminal bands. It was part of the scene. It was part of yeah. the thing. Very cool. Yeah. that th- I mean, that part was cool. And again, I didn't, I mean, there was such gross negligence among the grownups <laughs> where I lived. But somehow as a kid, at least when I lived in uh, Berkeley, I felt pretty safe. Yep. You know, um, actually, I don't think I've ever shared this on an interview before. I would grow up and learn that there was all kinds of like the, the kids that I grew up with were some of them were being molested all the time and stuff. It was it was actually. It was about as as effed up as you would imagine an organization that'll pretty much let anyone walk through the door and not really vet them. Yeah. Wow. Would be. And that's how it was. Cause everybody was so lost in the idealism and so lost. Mm. And, and look, let's be honest, lots and lots of drug use. Yeah. Right. So this whole countercultural idealism, but also tons and tons of drugs, you know, <laughs> well, what could get wrong? Right. Exactly. It's, yeah. I, I don't, I don't see a problem there, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, wow. Uh, but then you said you moved and that changed everything. Yeah, it was it was it was crazy. It was like um I was telling you before the show from my perspective as a kid, one day we lived in in the San Francisco Bay Area, the next day we're packing everything up and we're driving off to live in this new place. And uh the new place was in Stockton, California and um so that would have been, let's call it, that would have been 48 years ago. 48? Yeah, 48 years ago, 47 years ago. Um, Stockton has never once been off of the top 10 most violent and dangerous cities in the United States in that whole time. Yeah, wow. It's funny to me because all these other cities get all the like street cred in the movies, <laughs> yeah. you know, but yeah. I mean, Stockton has been one of the most dangerous places to live for at least 50 years. So we moved in our, in our hippie buses and our hippie wagons and our like literally with like big slogans painted on the sides, you know, and, uh, and flying saucers, UFOs on the sides and, and all this stuff. And just, I mean, we stood out like crazy Yeah. and we moved to, I mean, you just can't write, better you can't you just can't write a better story than this right so the whole the whole area we live in is a straight up chain link fence dilapidated houses it's a ghetto it's a ghetto it's like cars parked on the lawn you know kids running amok uh people leaving their their violent dogs off the leashes it is a ghetto and there's one house that is a perfectly preserved three-story mansion it's a historical landmark, and that's yep. where we moved. Wow. Yeah, and so we every, were just a, a target. We every were, family? <laughs> it was like it All was those crazy. families, All those families into that one place? Yeah, yeah. We all lived under one roof. Yeah, again, what could go wrong? Right. <laughs> so you're a target. What, what did that look like? like? Well, so – one of the memories I have of pulling in, um, 
It was actually very poetic, I thought, because we were pulling into the house and I'm looking out the back window of like a bus or a camper or something um, and I'm watching the sunset. And um, there's all these uh, these cholos, these vato locos, because that's that was the, the hood we were in. And they're looking at us like they don't know what to make of us. Yeah. Right. And I remember making eye contact with this one guy and he stands up. And he raises his hands like this, so his shirt separates, and he's got a gun sitting in his belt. And I think my – so I refer to all the other kids that grew up with me there as God brothers and sisters just for the ease of explanation, right? It's so much easier than saying every single time, like, okay, it was a kid I grew up with when I lived in this cult. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, my God sister is, like, unpacking boxes, and some kid rides up on his bike – and says, hey, are you new here? She goes, yeah, my name's Tora, blah, blah, blah. And uh, and, and I'm going to start school at Hazleton School. And he goes, I'm going to beat your ass tomorrow at school. Just well, rides okay. off. Yeah. <laughs> it's just. And so from pretty much the day we moved in, I was just thrust into like fighting every day. I didn't have time to figure out why they were so mad at us or why they hated us so much or or anything like that. It was just constant, constant fighting. So you said you were eight, is that right? So you're eight years old. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're going in from a place that had some challenges, but essentially it was a a reasonably safe feeling for you place into what you described as then moving into hell. Pretty much. How did your young brain process that at the time? How did you get through that time? That is, here's what I think. I think that as kids, we are better suited to accepting our environments at face value. And only as we get older does the trauma come out. Yeah, That that seems to be uh, the case. And so for me, it was a question of, I was scared all the time, but it was just, I was just scared all the time. Um, I had to fight all the time and, you know, sort of just went on high alert, super, super high alert for like four years. And that, you know, you were asking some stuff earlier before we jumped on the uh, uh, got live about how I do some of the stuff I do. And honestly, I think it's because my my sort of um, senses that evaluate situations and read people were just spiked through the roof for so long. I really do think that that's part of it. So at, at eight, survival instincts kick in at a level that most eight-year-olds don't have to deal with, which, yeah. Which, yeah. Yeah. So you de- feel like you developed certain skills at that time that, that uh, you wouldn't have developed in any other situation. I think so. I think so. I, I mean, one thing that I sort of came into this world with was um, a real passion for language and communication, a real passion for whether it be um, uh, verbal or nonverbal, like that's always been something I've been interested in. I think that the time that I spent in Stockton, particularly the first four years, but all of it, I mean, it was always dangerous there, really sort of took that and merged it with, you know, survival instincts. Mm. Did you have to use that communication at different times to talk your way out of trouble or was it more that you were sitting there reflecting on on how important it was to be able to do that? 
any answer I could give you would be would have the benefit of a lot of years of hindsight. Of course, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, th- I mean, if you look at it like other people listening to this and looking at their own journey, mm-hmm. looking through the lens of what is a really dark time and trying to f- make sense of it, yeah. Looking back from a later years is, is where the is where the gold is, right? We can see where these these finer skills that we've developed were honed. Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. Um, so the answer then I think is I would fight my way out of a corner. I would talk my way out of a corner. I would run. I would climb, you know, whatever it was. But um, I think that the communication and, and language piece really came was more so present in my long-term sort of assessment of the situation. I really do think that that's probably the the most accurate way to put it. You know, I started to sort of make a map of the world. So you, even at that point, you were looking at the long-term prospects for your life or are you saying looking back now in hindsight, seeing that? Um, sort of, sort of making long-term prospects for my life, but, but more so like, creating like a, a, a meta layer of, of how to understand what I was going through. Yeah, I love that's, that. yeah that's probably more, more accurate. Yeah. And that's powerful. And again, when we think of the work that you do, trying to understand things and helping other people to yeah. understand the, the, their story. Mm-hmm. So we'll come back to the, the journey do you see the link there now around this this whole thing around communication and and your ability to tell stories, but also to be able to help other people tell their stories? Yeah, I do see. I do. Um, the only, and I don't know how much it, it, it's worth exploring for myself personally, but the only question would be how much of it was sort of forged in because of Stockton, and how much of it was just inherently the way that I sort of interact with the world. I remember my mom telling me, and she swears up and down this is true. She said my first word was a complete sentence. Yeah, wow. She's And she's like not being playful. She said the first thing I ever said was I want a candy bar. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think for me, and I said that at nine months or eight and a half months. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And so I've been hyperverbal all my life. And honestly, I mean, this is a bit of an aside, but I think that's the reason that that I've been able to come however far I've come from where I started. I, I just think it's all because of that. Mm. You know, like I was able to do code switching at a very young age so that I could sound like whoever I was around and and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say I had a lot of smart friends who just didn't have that that ability with language and they just get stuck oh that's fascinating because i've always felt that myself i didn't have language around to how to explain it or, mm-hmm. or, the, or whatever it's called but like yeah it's almost like chameleon like blending in and, and talking the same language as the people right. you're around like in particularly for me is like trying to fit in mm-hmm. one of the easiest ways is when you just talk like people you look yep. at even young kids now right all dressing the same mm-hmm. haircuts the same in australia the the mullets back the the long, long hair and the short sides. It's like, how did that happen? But I guess history just keeps Finally. repeating, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So it's really fascinating that you say that. So being able to talk other people's languages is something that uh, is that you really can identify with now. Yeah, man. And I think that um, I think that that's easily the best thing I was given in, in this life. Easily the best thing, you know, because one of the things that I've, I learned was how you look is far less important than how you sound. Yeah. And, and taking that at a deeper level, it's what comes before you even open your mouth, right? The, the nonverbal communication. Yeah. That's, that's huge as well. But like in those, like in, in, in clutch type situations or in, in, you know, the idea of code switching or is that something does that I haven't, heard that, I haven't heard that term before. So what it is, is it's the ability to like, you know, elevate your diction or adjust your lexicon so that you can speak like the people you're around. Yep. So, um, yeah. And that has been, I, I'll give you one example. I remember we had a footbridge over, over a levee and you could either walk the footbridge route home from middle school or you could walk an extra two and a half miles, right? And the footbridge was, it was a coin toss whether or not there'd be some punk waiting to just beat kids up. Yep. And one day we took the footbridge and there was this kid, Benny, on the other end of the footbridge. And my friends, without saying anything, as soon as we got on the footbridge, they just turned around and left. And it's just me. <laughs> like I didn't oh, even no. know they weren't still there with me. <laughs> And I kind of realized like halfway down the footbridge and it's, it's narrow and it's fenced in. Like I can either turn and run and he's bigger, probably catch me if he wanted to. And, uh, and he was a black kid. And so I just walked straight. I walked right up by him and I was, yo, Benny, what's going on, man? <laughs> and he was so surprised that I did that. <laughs> we had never spoken before. So it wasn't yeah, wow. like we knew each other. I just knew him because he was a troublemaker in school. Yeah. And, and a big old grin crossed his face and he like gave me a, you know, he gave me a high five and a little like, you know, the bro hug, the one, the one armed hug. Yeah. yeah. He just gave me a high five and a bro hug. and He just let me walk on my way. <laughs> and you bet you couldn't wait to tell those suckers who'd taken the two mile walk. Right? Yeah. Yeah, had to wait a long time because for them it was an hour walk. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Um, it's interesting, like what where my brain goes is like uh, how the world has changed. And if you did that now, that would be frowned upon, right? Well, you can't. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But that is a like... whole other story. Yeah. <laughs> um, Here, I do have something to add on that. Though. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're first filter into the world is that self-righteousness. Um, you know what I mean? Like the first yeah. way you judge everyone and everything you see. Yeah. People love the feeling of being connected with in their code. Yes. That's why I didn't get my ass kicked that day. Yeah. It, there's something so powerful. Meeting people where they're at. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think so. It, it, it's a hugely powerful thing and it doesn't have anything to do with how you're dressed you know what i no. mean or or what yeah. what sort of group you look like you belong to 
if you can switch the context and the code and connect with somebody in, I guess, really, you could say in a language they understand, it's just a powerful thing. And I think that, I hope, it's deeper than any temporary social sort of like, you know, the wokeism we're seeing and the all that that stuff that, yo, I am not with that for anyone watching. Come at me, bro. Because <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> yeah. And people get too offended too yeah. easily. And yeah. there's too many names for things and there's too many, oh, is that yeah. causing an offense? Right. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, yeah, like at our nature, we want people to be able to connect with us in a way that we understand. Man, I love right. that. That's awesome. Yeah. So in this world of uh, a hippie culture and then thrown into this basically gang culture, you said like yeah. it was like thinking back now, they were like hardcore organized gangs that you were suddenly immersed in. Yeah. How, how quickly like was was the turn to drug use, you said from the age of 10, was that a result of the f- constantly living in fear or was that just because that's what everyone else was doing around My you? My guess is that it was just because it was normal. Yeah. You know, we would have uh, uh, discos every Sunday night. And, and you know, the, the people that were, it's funny, I call them grownups, but none of them were even the age I am now, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was probably about 40 before I realized that the people I called grownups all my life were just kids. Yeah. Primarily speaking, they were like in their 20s. Yeah. But, um, so everybody would smoke a bunch of pot, drink a bunch of wine, you know, um, you could take LSD if you wanted. You could take mushrooms. It was kind of open field. And they weren't super uptight about, you know, passing a joint to a kid if a kid was standing there. Or, or you know, like in my case, after my first drink of wine or something, I'd just walk around say, looking for people who I thought might give me another drink of wine because I like that feeling right away. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So much so that you said basically from that age through to about 28, mm-hmm. you were basically every day you were using. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Pretty much every day. If, I, if, if, I, if a day went by that I didn't, it was not by choice. Yeah. So you said you used the term, uh, well, first you said life was basically surreal looking back now, but you yeah. said uh, – you, you don't know if you've known a more enthusiastic, enthusiastic drug addict than yourself. Like that's how into it you were. That's, yeah. So, so how does that, like, is that 18 years a blur? No, no, it's not a blur. Parts of it are blurry. <laughs> you know, you know, the one that blurs you is alcohol. Mm. The others don't blur you, at least not the ones I liked. So started off with pot, and alcohol uh, moved pretty young into uh, amphetamines, like like, but but pills, like you know, low low grade uppers. Then from there, uh, cocaine and methamphetamines. And uh, if you do enough cocaine and methamphetamines, you're you're going to find yourself in need of stronger downers at some point. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and then I had a I had a period that I did a lot of psychedelics. That would be the only one I don't really regret. <laughs> I was about to say it sounds like there's a story there. So, what did you find in that space that just lit you up just then? 
You mean the psychedelics in particular? Yeah. That's that's something that here's what I can say about it. And if there are any other people who have done psychedelics more than that, like I did it once in high school and I had a bad trip, you know. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, if you say that, I don't believe you. <laughs> I, I think you're just trying to be cool and 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 code switch and connect with me, which I'm fine yeah. with. But I don't believe you. <laughs> anyway, um, here's what I can say for sure. There was a there was a period of about three three and a half years where me and a, my same group of friends uh, every weekend we'd start on Friday and we wouldn't come down till Sunday, and for all of us, it was wonderful. Sorry. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I have to say sorry. Yeah. Not to you, but, you know, <laughs> if the censorship board is out there listening, sorry. <laughs> um, it was, it was, it was fantastic. Uh, and there never really was a downside for me. We had a couple of times I did, I had a couple of times where, um, Circum external circumstances that we put ourselves in made us kind of freak out a little bit, but it was never like the archetypal bad trip that you hear in drug circles. I never had one of those. Yeah. Um, and I came away from that, that period in my life. It's hard to define exactly what I came away with, but it's something clear. There's a clear before and after. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's... from what I've learned is the, the healing properties of psychedelics and, and yeah. to be able to cut through all the noise and all the yeah. all the stuff that's not real. Does any of that resonate? If you think back, considering how much of that stuff that felt very real, real was really intense and really dark? I think that, um, I think that it gave me, hey, Allison, it gave me, Lots of very creative, very spontaneous ways to uh, just to look at life and and to to sort of I had this one cool experience, but while while on psychedelics, we were hanging out with one of the grown-ups in the cult who at that time would have been probably 28, you know, 27. <laughs> but he he was a a math phenom. He was a he was a mathematical genius. The guy was just at a level with math that was baffling. Um, and so we're we're hanging out with him, and he's showing us all of this really cool geometric stuff, and he's explaining it to us, and we're we're having a really good time. <laughs> <laughs> but he he veered off into this thing where he was like he was using math, as I remember it. <laughs> to to sort of tell us what each of our individual sort of deepest gifts were. So it was, it was just, you know, if you've done psychedelics, you'll instantly recognize this as a psychedelic experience. <laughs> I, I straight away got very intrigued. <laughs> yeah. But what he said to me was, he said, your gift is mapping. And I didn't understand that for years. Yeah, wow. Um, but he said, you have an ability and you will, as you go through life, you'll have a better and better ability to take ideas from one domain 
and be able to make them understandable in other domains. Wow. Now, this is something that you can relate to and Allison can relate to, but unfortunately for the rest of you guys watching, you may not be able to relate to this. Take you, know how, for it. you know how when I'm coaching, I, yeah. I use analogic. That's To me, that's what that is. It's like read the audience, read the people that are on the call and go, oh, I think I have an analogy here that'll make you guys all understand. Here's, here's the map for yeah. you to go forward mm -hmm. on, on what you on your story and your message. Yeah, yeah. wow, that's cool. Um, <laughs> even thinking about like the words that you use are like positioning and, and I know they're, they're marketing words, they're not new, but how beautifully they tie into to that ability. Yeah. Did that – okay, so – you said, well, you're not sure, but there's a, there's a clear delineation between that part of previous part of your life and from there going forward. But moments like that, there must have been a fair few of them where suddenly it's it's almost like it's making sense of, of a world that prior to then didn't seem to make sense, right? Particularly when you'd have those contrasts between yeah. uh, San Francisco and, and Stockton. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of those moments especially during my my sort of psychedelic mini era. But that's kind of what psychedelics are famous for, you know? Like, my mom was dating a guy during that period of my life, and um, he was, he was like, cool with a capital K, you know? He wasn't just yeah. a cool guy, which he was, but he was cool. He was, like, Fonzie cool. He was a, he was a guitar <laughs> player in a rock band, and, you know, he read... He read philosophy books and you know what I mean? He was that kind of cool. Yeah. And he once said, um, he just made it this off the, off the cuff quip about psychedelics. And it was something to the effect of, Oh, what was that revelation I had last night that would have solved everything. <laughs> 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 so there are quite a few of those moments, you know, that's sort of what, that's one of the things that, that, uh, that psychedelics predictably deliver is those moments of like, oh my God, I see it all. Yeah. And so, yes, we, my, myself and my friends, we had a lot of those moments. Yeah. I think they stick with you, even though you can't quite grasp them the next day. I think they stick with you. Yeah. Wow. So when, what level of your programs do I need to reach before we do the psychedelic work? You have to come over to California. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> Whatever level that is. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> okay, so so you you mentioned like uh, there was another sort of defining moment. Well, let let's start here. What what had you at twenty eight stopping that daily using? So. Let's back up to 21. 21 was when I left Stockton. And uh, I left because one of my best friends and I were walking to the store on, in one of the good sides of town in the middle of the day. I had just recently uh, <laughs> narrowly avoided having myself just beat possibly to death. I mean, just was like three weeks earlier in a different city with a different, one of my many crazy, crazy friends. Uh, we got through hundred percent our fault. And when I say our fault, I mean, mostly his fault. Yeah. We wound up getting jumped by uh, seven guys. Seven seems to be the magic number, by the way. And 
we, I, I mean, I ran for my life and I got away from them. But at the end of the chase, I tripped and I fell on the asphalt and I hurt my knee. And um, it was a whole thing. <laughs> it was a whole thing. Yeah. And if you want more on this, you can read my book. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, so my knee is still bad. And I'm walking to the store with my best friend and we're getting beer and we're walking back getting the beer. And again, this is daytime and this is in a one of the better sides of town. We hear, there they are. Somebody yells out of a car, there they are. And we think, because this is Stockton, oh, yeah. let's let's wait here. Somebody's going to get in a fight. Two cars whip up on either side of us and people get out and circle us. Oh, there you are. Yeah, yeah, it was us. Uh, and and we didn't know these people. This was just this was a total random event, um, and, and I it, it got really really bad really really fast. It got fucking scary. So when what we're talking <laughs> gun, guns in your face, sort of scary. Like what are we talking? No, about? we're talking surrounded by I don't know seven or eight people, um, and one guy is. Uh, I remember writing about this in my memoir. It was like he was speaking in tongues. Wow. It, it was just, I knew something, I knew this was a serious moment. And the way I remember it was like, he was just possessed by a demon or something. Yeah. Anyway, I sort of blink out a little bit and I come back too. And somehow, even with my bad knee, I'm on the other side of this circle and I'm grabbing my friend and I'm trying to pull him through. The guy uh, grabs his vest and stabs him right in the nipple. Shit. Yeah. Stabs him right there. Well, you can't see, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so the paramedics or the, the whoever it was that operated, somebody told us the blade was only about that long. But it went in at an angle and it nicked his heart and it nicked his lung. And so he almost died. Wow. He, uh, we got through the circle. We turned around, started throwing beer cans or bottles at them. We run up to the apartment that we were staying at. And by the time he gets up the stairs to the apartment, he's white as a sheet. And he's like, and I do not feel good. And we look and we realize he is bleeding profusely. Oh, he, did he not even realize he'd been stabbed at this point? No idea. So I'll keep going. We'll come, we'll come yeah. back to that. Yeah. So thank God we acted fast. And, and really, thank God my friend Jeff was there. My friend Jeff, ex, not ex, but like he was currently like in the Air Force and he had been trained and he was always really, really level-headed in a clutch, in a clutch situation. He came out and he just immediately put pressure on the wound, started giving orders, you know. Yep. Um, we got the ambulance there. Uh there was a there was a psychotic moment where the ambulance drivers are arguing over where to take him as he's like laying there bleeding out yeah and i remember again bad knee and all i rush up to this ambulance driver and i grab him by his his shirt and i slam him against the ambulance so just get my friend to the fucking hospital now yeah wow it was it was really really bad <laughs> that was the moment where i was like i'm done up until then, I was like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm tough enough to live in Stockton and, and your, your environment kind of it defines you. I was done. I was done after that. Yeah, wow. 
have you sort of gone deeper into that moment where you said it was almost like a blink around like what well, like what was that was it was it almost like just an in, instinctive intuitive involuntary moment of your the survival part of you acting and just going we need to get out of here sort of thing like have you sort of yeah. had much yeah yeah that was very much what it was i i don't i could only tell you that i knew that right where i was was the worst place to be mm. I, 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 not those moments, but I, but I love hearing stories about the, the part of us that's like, well, what else are we capable of when, when those sort of like it's like the override switch comes on, like yeah, maybe maybe a message comes directly into your head. I don't know if you've had those moments or there's something else that just happens. It's like, whoa, where, where did that come from? But what what I get a sense of is like, if that hadn't have happened, your friend's not here, right? Yeah, absolutely not. And maybe not me. Yeah, right. Yeah, and maybe not me. Yeah. I mean, there's it, it didn't make any sense that I was able to break through that circle of people, you know. I mean, not only did I have a bum knee, <laughs> I weighed about 150 pounds at that time in my life. Like, I was not a strong Tiny. person or a powerful person. Yeah. You know, physically. Um, this wow. version of me, you might expect me to be able to break between a couple of guys, but not then. The tough Volvo driver that you are. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, wow. So you said, so that was when you got out of Stockton. Yeah, and so I moved up to uh, <clears throat> a city called Chico, where one of my best friends had previously moved. And, I mean, Chico was started off pretty idyllic. You know, it's a college town. Um it was friendly. Like it took me two years to relax my face, you know, because everywhere I yeah. go, people would just wave at me and say hi. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, and yet I still managed to find Chico's dark underbelly uh, because, you know, because I brought myself with me. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was the city I was in when I, you know, found myself in that, that, that moment where I was holding that gun and I was making those plans to, yeah, so to, to literally hunt this. someone down. Yeah. Yeah. So if we again, refer back to your work and in, in, in how important it is when you, when you're telling your story to know that pinnacle moment. And so how, tell us how that came about. Like, where did we get to? Uh, so, <laughs> Hey, Allison, <laughs> When I got to Chico, it's it's hard to overstate how different that was than Stockton. Like, I mean, I literally went to one party and met a whole group of people that became my best friends. Yeah, wow. That, that kind of thing didn't really happen in my experience in Stockton. Everybody's way too on edge and, and you know. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite, yeah. So yeah. so I found this this what would prove to be a really, really great set of friends. But we all had, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Birds of a feather, right? Yeah, we all had proclivities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it was just, that was, I didn't know it at the time, but my my sort of soul contract with myself was that this is the place where I take it to the line. And I did. 
I did, you know, um, Chico was great, but it also had tons and tons of methamphetamine. And when you've got tons of methamphetamine, you've got this, the element that, you know, like Chico's this beautiful little city, but in the hills around it, it's lots of like, um, bikers and, and, you know, uh, just other kind of <laughs> troublesome people. Yeah. And so little by little, I sort of found myself with a, a weirder and weirder and more and more dangerous crowd and a more and more sketchy crowd of people and uh, just kind of hit bottom. Was, was there any moment when you were hanging out with these people where you, where you got a sense of, or do you remember feeling like, I probably shouldn't be here, or, but like whatever, or like it wasn't even Not that at that time, of, no. no? At, at that time, I was pretty subscribed to the, the – uh, the sort of um, persona that I had spent the last, you know, 20 years or so creating, I, I bought into it pretty much. Yeah. Right. And uh, it, it took, but it took that moment holding that gun where that's when I said, okay, wait a minute, hold on. This is shit's getting out of hand. You know? Okay. How do you get from there? Like, so you, you've upped the uh, methamphetamine usage uh, to then holding a gun, actually contemplating killing someone. Well, it depends on how much time you have, but it's, it's, it's a good story. So here's how it went. <laughs> Go. <laughs> little by little, you know, like I said, the, the crowd I ran with just got shadier and shadier. Yep. I find myself, living with a prostitute and she is basically paying for everything for me in exchange for me living there. So, so I was, it was kind of like I was a pimp. I was going to say that, you know, (laughs) it was, and and, I mean, seriously, like for my integrity, that, that was a low point. (laughs) It did not feel good. No. But um, uh, we had, you know, copious drug use in common for sure. Yep. And we had been up for a couple of days and uh, we decide one, one, one morning at about 530 in the morning, let's go to one of the local breakfast spots. We'll eat a big breakfast. We'll go home and crash. Okay. So we're on our way to this breakfast spot. And um, she she did not have the ability to hold it together after two or three days that I had. So we're driving, she's driving and uh, we pull onto the main street through downtown Chico. There's nobody on the road, right? It's, I mean, it's just sun up. Yep. And um, it's like a three lane road. And then you, you go one block over and it's three lanes, the other direction. So it's a one way road, three lanes wide. We pull onto it. Like two or three blocks ahead of us is a is a police car just going about their business and she just panics. And when she panics, I mean she's like swerving back and forth across three lanes of traffic. She's basically hysterical in the driver's seat. And I'm like, well, this is it. It's been a good run. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm just like I I I know something's happening. So the cop car quietly pulls over, pulls off, you know, turns the corner. Well, they just went around behind us <laughs> and they came and they arrested us. They pulled us over. Um, now, at the starting of this two or three day run, I had been hanging out and somebody gave me a money belt. No money in it, just a money belt, you know. 
So I've got it under my clothes. <laughs> and here's, all this money belt has in it is a little tiny Ziploc bag with just the, the littlest bit of speed left in it. And I completely forgot about this. Yeah. So when we get pulled over, I get searched. They don't find it. We go, and I'm totally cooperating. In fact, I'm trying to sweet talk the police. Yes, your point. communication skills. Yeah. Communication skills. Yeah, I'm, yeah. it's funny because I totally code switched. <laughs> you know, start talking their language. And we got yeah. pulled over by two female officers. So I was doing pretty good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so we go to the jail and um, they search me again and don't find it. I have to sit and, and do processing and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, yeah, I was there for three or four hours, you know, I had done such a good job of ingratiating myself that one of the, the, the ladies come, came back to me four or five times just to chat with me. Yeah, right. So it was going pretty well. Right. Yeah. Finally, she goes, okay, you're free to go. And I was like, great. You know, um, I'm going home to go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She goes, yeah, you look like you need some sleep. And so as I'm leaving, she goes, you know what? Just to be safe, let me search you one more time. And she finds the money belt. Wow. And that was it. That was it. That brought me, uh, that wound me up in county jail. I don't remember how long I stayed there. But when I got out of county jail, it turned out, I had made the papers. Wow. This ridiculous little nickel and dime happenstance bust. I'm on the front page of the Chico Gazette. <laughs> Famous. Yeah. It's just, it's so weird, man. Well, looking back <laughs> on it, my best guess is they were somebody was trying to make, you know, make hay, like, look at what we did. And so they trumped up what it was. Uh, I don't know. I honestly don't know what that was all about, but I get out and, um, well, she's, she's still in jail. And so I'm homeless. She right. Yeah. And, um, even though, even when I was staying with her, I had a lot of my stuff distributed among at, at friends' houses. And so I go to one friend's house to try to take a shower and he answers the door and he looks like he's seen a ghost literally slammed the door in my face. This happened two or three times. So finally I managed to connect with uh, uh, two friends of mine who are big country boys. And we literally go and we kick a door in to get some answers. And so kicked the door in and finally got someone to talk to me and he said that one guy who I had considered to be one of my close friends had gone around and created and just told all these crazy stories about me, why I was in jail, that I ratted on everyone. By the oh. way, with, you know, 25 years of hindsight now. Yeah. If you're a nickel and dime hanging out in little apartments, drug user, you really don't have to worry that they're watching you. <laughs> Like, yeah. yeah. 
none of us knew that at the time, though. We were convinced that it was like <laughs> the DEA is watching us. And we're transacting these like twenty and forty dollar drug deals. You know, but the DEA yeah, is yeah. watching us because they got nothing better to do. <laughs> so. But what I found out was that this friend of mine went around and not only did he sort of turn everyone against me, he took all my stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was homeless and he stole all my stuff. <laughs> like, so, so he was kind of like uh, protecting himself and, and worried about this celebrity now who was in the newspaper, what that meant, what that meant for his world? Maybe. I don't know. I never spoke to him again. And so... Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm left to just guess at his motivations. So anyway, <clears throat> uh, word travels fast in those kind of circles, right? And and this guy happened to be a black guy, which was of no concern. It meant nothing to me. I, I, I loved this guy. This was, I thought of this guy as one of my best friends. Um, but... I also was like friends with a lot of very, very racist white guys, the guys that lived up in the hills. Yep. And they heard about it and then it became an issue. Right. So I get a, <laughs> I was going to say I get a call, but I get a, a page. Right? <laughs> <laughs> a fax. <laughs> yeah. And my little pager goes off. And so I call and it's one of my friends from up the hills. And he says, uh, I heard about what's happening. Be on the lookout for me. I'll be there in a half an hour. Oh, wow. He comes down, proceeds to make sure that I'm plenty, you know, plenty high on drugs. He goes, you good? I said, no, I haven't had anything all day. Oh, here, do this. Gets me all high. Yeah. <laughs> and then he says, come out to the truck. I want to show you something. And that's like, like it sort of like in the circle when those guys were, were jumping us. I knew something was wrong here. Yeah. And he reaches into the glove box and he pulls out what, turned out to be like a snub nose 45 puts it in my hand you know it's in an oily rag and somehow the first thing i noticed the first thing i noticed is the serial numbers filed off the bottom of it it's the first thing i see clarity even amongst all that hype. <laughs> well uh, it's like the relevant things you know the <laughs> yeah. relevant details jumped right out yeah and he just starts saying here's what's going to happen i'm going to come back at midnight you know if we're actually at that point he said let's go find this guy right now he puts a one gun in my hand and shows me another one that he's got so let's go find this guy and i'm processing at two different speeds here externally yeah. i'm like yeah man yeah you know because you you got to play the you can't that's not the time to go, no, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but internally, my mind is going about a thousand times faster, and I just concoct this whole plan. Great, sounds good, meet me back here at midnight. He's like, okay, it's on. As soon as he left, I got on the phone, started making phone calls frantically. For those of you that don't know, this is a push-button phone. <laughs> <laughs> and... Within about an hour, I had a ride back to Stockton, to my mom's house. Two small boxes of belongings. That was it. And I'm wired to the teeth, riding back to my mom's house in the back of a little Honda CRX. If you guys don't have those in Australia, they're very small. Uh, we did, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and that was it. That was it. I showed up at my mom's house crying, 
wildly high on drugs and I just was like, I'm done. Wow. And so were you able just to stop using there and then? Yeah, that was it. <sighs> wow. In the, in the days, weeks, months after, and, and also like yeah. years and, and even sort of currently, how often have you looked back at that moment and thought, could it have gone another way? What if it had gone another way? I mean, that moment kept me up till four in the morning for a year, probably. I'd be yeah. tired all day. I'd go to lay down at night and just be wide awake panicking wide awake, just reliving everything, not just that moment, but all yeah. the conflict and all the trouble. And, you know, yeah. I, I made a lot of enemies toward the end there. I had a lot of people that, that didn't like me. Um, <clears throat> I don't know that it could have gone different. I mean, there was, there was, it's hard to say it's all speculative now, but yeah. I yeah. felt like there was a clarity inside of me that no way at all. Am I doing this? Yeah. Well, maybe that's the question then. Have you, have you thought about the fact that you had that ability? Because I'm sure there have been other people put in that same situation where they've been under the influence of something, mm -hmm. put in that exact same situation and haven't had the presence of mind, haven't had the clarity to see the, the parts that you could see, yeah. the mapping, if you will, yeah. uh, that, that were able to help you to navigate that externally, doing something, but internally processing in a completely different way through all of that. Yeah. I, I don't really know, you know, mm. I, I just know, I know that as soon as I realized what my friend's intent was, that I wasn't going through with it. So what, what happens for your life then when you've been used to something for using for yeah. 18 years, especially through those teen years, which are, which are so influential to where we end up. Yeah. How, like, how did you get through that time? Like what, what else showed up that, that made it even more challenging? <laughs> Fucking everything. <laughs> <laughs> like I brought it all down, man. I, I, uh, I did. I, I grabbed my whole self just by, you know, by the foundations. I tore me back down to the studs. It took a long time too, you know, so immediately I went into uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and, and Narcotics Anonymous <clears throat> and started going to meetings all the time and just basically living there. Um, and I saw other people seeming to make progress faster than me. And then the next thing I realized was they weren't digging as deep as I was. Mm. Um, and so at a certain point I stopped, I, I mean, I still identify as an addict, but at a certain point, I stopped going to those meetings because it seemed like everybody got complacent after a certain point, and it was just about, like, doing your time. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because I've, I've had other people who have been in that system, and it's like it's just mm -hmm. another system that's replacing the old system, and it actually just keeps you in the story rather than allowing you to release it. Yeah. So, so how – is it because you were willing to dig deep and actually go, well, I actually want to get to the root of this that allowed you to step out? Was there something else that happened there that you went, okay, I need to remove myself from this situation? I think it was, you know, it was this need to feel like I had gotten to the bottom of these questions. Um, 
Really? Yeah, I would say that's it. And also <laughs> trying to date those women was <laughs> really hard. Not for ideal. Me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so well, that was part of it too. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I came to some points in my life where I was like, I, I don't, I think I'm going to have to just be celibate for the rest of my life. I just can't find anybody who's like on this, like, let's seriously get to the bottom of our shit path. Mm. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to that. I wanted to ask you about something. You, you used a phrase beforehand. You said like through that, that time, like previously to 28, you said the, your ability to perceive and evaluate becomes warped. Yeah, definitely. So how does that play out? Like it, is it result in you making decisions that are just looking back at are just madness or like what, what else happens in that space when everything is warped? Well, we, we see, we see a different, we see the same thing showing up in a different way with like social media tribalism. Right. Yep. I don't know about you, but when I go on social media and use that as my sort of litmus test of how people are doing it's one thing. And I go out my front door and it's, it's, it's another thing entirely. Yeah. Like, sure. Maybe the people that I'm interacting with in my, in my city are on social media being trolls maybe, but like it's, it's a, you don't see it out there, you know? And so that's kind of an example of how, you know, if we surround ourselves with input that supports our biases, it turns yeah. into like an echo chamber. Mm. So all of that, those environments you and we're confirming and keeping you in that. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. The confirmation bias space around that whole, like mm -hmm. what you said, that, that, that place of hell that you went into at that young age. Yeah. yeah. And we so, all do it. We all do it yes. until yeah, yeah. we know, until you know, like, <laughs> do you ever, you ever see that movie Labyrinth with David Bowie? Uh, yeah. I can't remember much of it. If I'm honest, okay. that's without drug use. It's, yeah. It's, it is just beautiful metaphor after beautiful metaphor, beautiful analogy after it's just a teaching tool, but there's this, there's this one moment where, they're walking along and there are three rocks that all look a little bit odd. Right. And as they walk to one point, their perspective has the rocks all lined up with each other. And when the three rocks line up with each other, they make this really cool, like one side of the face relief of David Bowie's face. Cause he's the, he's the goblin King, but, and that's cool but it's a great way to describe how all of us are interacting with the world. Mm, right. Yeah. Like if, if from this perspective, if you look straight on and you see half of the goblin King's face in stone, but you move over here and it's just three rocks. Yeah. It's just about that different perspective. Um, mm. Now so here's, here's something to, to keep in mind if you start getting really good at having different perspectives, being able to switch perspectives, uh, people won't invite you to be part of their club as often. 
Yes, hundred <laughs> percent. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Because if you they don't will, see, uh... if you don't see things our way, then uh, don't feel enough. I feel quite as comfortable in your presence, right? Exactly. Exactly. And being able to do that for ourselves is one of the most critical skills, I believe, is to be able to take that, like almost observe a look at our own world and yeah. come and yeah. our, our, ourselves from that different angle. Mm-hmm. So well, everyone's trauma and everyone's grief is different, right? And I, and I can still be drawn into the comparison, right? But like right. you lived yeah. it. So you built, you built the coping mm-hmm. mechanisms and you were able to move through it. For me, like, I'm like, well, I've had to do so much ongoing healing and releasing. What, what sort of processes have you been through that have helped you release so much of this? Because when I, when I talk to people, I get clear tells in my body from body language where there's unresolved stuff. And, of, and of course, everyone has it, right, and, and different things have shown up for you. But in the main, it's like it feels like you've made peace with a fair bit of this. So, so how have you done that? Uh, I have made peace with a fair bit of it. Um, there were a few different, so remember we talked earlier about the psychedelics, the period in my life is probably from 15 to 18 was heavily a psychedelic period for me. And I really believe that that facilitated, if nothing else, an ability to look at things from a lot of different points of view. Yeah, and an ability to sort of at least more often i think than than is typical to recognize and let go of uh schemas and matrices that sort of frame how i'm looking at shit you know what i mean yeah yeah and so that's been huge it's been a huge huge thing i always think of the hero's journey and how the hero will always get some little gift at some point and you're like what did the, the elf queen gave him that? Why didn't she like, you know, give him 10 boats and 50 archers? <laughs> but the thing comes into play perfectly. Yes. At just the right time. That's kind of how that has played out. So the specific things, like I got into a period where it was, it was about lifting heavy, heavy, heavy weights and that was honestly one of the most spiritual things I've ever done. Yeah, wow. It was, if you know, you know, but if you don't, there is something just profound about getting yourself into a zone where it's just you and that weight that challenges the outer boundary of your ability. Mm, the presence and then all at the same time, it's also challenging the inner part of you, right? Because how much oh, yeah. of that yeah. when you're pushing the boundaries mm-hmm. is about like beliefs and, and the exactly. mind. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it wasn't maybe lifting the heavy weights as much as it was realizing how much of my idea of what I could do was self-imposed. Yeah. And it's Powerful. not, it's not abstract. Like, like, talking with somebody and they share an idea with you that, Hey, maybe your thought process is limiting you. It's different because you're under 300 pounds of iron. You know, it's very real and it's very tangible. And if you don't figure it out, you've got a real problem. (laughs) 
Yeah. That was that was huge. It's I mean, exercise and heavy heavy weights is still really huge for me. But that was there was a period there where I had developed like breathing techniques to get myself into the zone. I had developed centering techniques and it was just like my, I'd have my headphones on tune out the rest of the gym. And it was just how much could I get to this, this sort of blissful simplicity of it's just me and this thing I'm trying to move. Oh man, that's powerful. So, so, breathing. so beautiful. Yeah. yeah, breathing, tuning in, presence, mm-hmm. removing the rest of the stuff. Oh, it's like a meditative practice, right? 100%. 100%. Yeah. Powerful. So I know on the, the grief journey and, and also the, when we, you talked about those gifts that you get, the the, uh, the prizes along the journey. Yeah. When we, when we go on this journey and we sort of fall into the place and we're helping people with exactly what we're meant to be helping them with because it's aligned to our own journey and, and you know, specifically around perception and evaluating and the mapping and different perspectives, I love how that plays out beautifully in the work that you do now. What I know is that we tend to continually have challenges in that area, which is why we are so such experts in it because not only have we gone on the journey, we'll continue to strive to, to push the boundary. So, yeah. so where is the next boundary that, that you know you need to push around yourself and how will that help the people that you serve? I think, I think the boundary for me, so I was, I've been fortunate enough if, I mean, some people wouldn't call this fortunate because it was very, very difficult to get to it. But I've been fortunate enough to be able to connect to what I'm pretty sure was my primary wound. And that was a a wound with my mother. And I was able to connect to it in a way that was very meaningful and able to to sort of build change in behavior off of that. But I do recognize that um, I have tertiary boundaries that are still pretty unclear. Um, I don't know what will, will come in terms of how to serve other people, <clears throat> but I know that that's, that's something that's still present for me. Like I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good with uh, boundaries, communication, sort of self-evaluation, self-awareness, but I do also recognize that um, I I think my attachment style to my mom as a kid would be characterized as uh, anxious, ambivalent. That's the textbook. Uh, And most of us, I mean, unfortunately, you know, it's not a small club, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it, it dogs your steps through all meaningful relationships of your life. And it gives you that sort of like crazy making feeling of how do I keep reliving the same fundamental situation over and over and over again? Um, Go on. Well, one of the, one of the things that I've been able to bring into some elements of my coaching and my work that I learned from that, there are a couple of cool ideas there. One is like, Maybe it's because I'm a man. Maybe it's because I'm um, like 
I don't know, super alpha or something. I don't know if I really am that, but <laughs> um, I like healing through catharsis. You know what I yeah. mean? I, yeah. I love a good old fashioned catharsis, man. A yeah. lightning bolt that just blasts me and I like get it after that. Even if I'm left smoldering in ash, I like that. But here's the thing. Most of that primary wound stuff doesn't get healed by catharsis. No. It's the opposite of catharsis. It's like yeah. this super soft, like feminine process of like inviting in and just sitting with it. You know, and I had this wonderful therapist, I guess, in my early 40s, was it? Anyway, whatever it was, she would always use the phrase, just get curious about it. Just get curious about it, right? And I feel like marketing and especially positioning and writing your story is it's self-help. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like, 100%. Yeah, it's a very spiritually driven process. And what I see with people, especially when it comes to writing their story, is they get stuck in these places. And so far, no one has been aware of this idea of like, just, just be curious about that. Just develop an interest in it and, and don't ignore it. But you see what I'm saying? But don't rush to some like cathartic conclusion because those tend to be um, the equivalent of like a really good orgasm when you're alone. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like... oh, best analogy on this show ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, where do we go from there? <laughs> the, the words that come to mind are patience, right? Yeah. If I think again about even how you coach and you teach and you guide absolutely patience whereas a lot of people in the marketing game and the coaching game for that matter and, and anything where you're being a service society in general 100 miles an hour people wanting the magic bullet quick fix yeah. all these different things mm -hmm. some things take a bit longer and sometimes yeah. we need we need our hand held through that huh interestingly like right. we're stuck <laughs> feel like we were stuck in a circle yeah and that's probably if i think about it now yes i i stay for the humor but uh, that's that's what I'm drawn to you by is the is the hand holding through things, and that's at different times I haven't experienced, and it's why I deliver the same way. It's like I want to be with in this with you, not so I can go into the the pain, but so I can help guide you out into the other side. Yeah. So what dawned on me is like something that I already knew from my work, but even what how you market is that by helping people tell their story. And by helping people to get their story, you're actually, you are healing them through a yeah. cathartic process yeah. by taking them through that. Wow. Have, or maybe, maybe uh, Alison who's watching now is another one of your students could, could uh, share whether that's been the case for her, but I, it's, there's so much power in, in telling our story of being heard, being seen, being so heard much. in a way that, yeah, that we weren't when we were younger. Um. Of all the things I've done to try to rebuild and understand and heal myself, I will tell you that taking myself through the process that that distilled into what you guys know as the question mark story model yep. was 
two orders of magnitude or three more powerful than everything else combined. It was the single most powerful. It would almost be like a catharsis, except it took nine months for me to write my memoir. Yeah. But it was really, and now, now that I'm thinking about it, Ian, um, I got to the end and I was like, how do I end this thing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> shit, man, this is yeah. my whole life, right? <laughs> how do yeah. I end this? And I thought back on, uh, I think it was my, my, one of my English teachers in college was talking about uh, Ulysses by James Joyce. And he was he was marveling at how I think the whole last chapter is written stream of consciousness with no punctuation. Now, I haven't read it yet, but yeah. I took that idea and I was like, what if I just took the gloves off and I just vomited out all the hate, all the frustration, all the vitriol at my family and at everyone? Because I spent the whole book holding myself equally accountable to everyone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it actually was a catharsis to end the book. Yeah. Awesome. It, it awesome. Was, it was so brutal. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so Alison did chime in there, and she said when I first started writing my story, I was yeah. shocked at how intense the memories were. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and if I think about what you just described there, Manny, it was part of the early stages of my healing was exactly that. It was getting all those things out about what I felt like other people had done to me, right? Still in yeah. that block space. Yeah. But being able to tell it and write it down. And even if I just told it for my own benefit, mm -hmm. the healing powers of that, like I can remember just in tears writing this yeah. sort of stuff. Just, you got to get that stuff out. You got to get it out, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I went through a process writing my memoir where I was never sure if it was good or not as I wrote it. And so I'd have to read what I wrote every night to my wife and only by her reaction was I able to gauge, okay, this stays as it is, or I change this yep. literally, you know? And so I got to that last part, that last part. It's just, it's just fury. Raw. Yeah. It is raw. Yeah. And I look up from reading it and she's just tears are just streaming down her cheeks. And then, uh, and then I'm like, and I realized tears have been streaming down my cheeks the whole time. Yeah. Wow. It was, it was intense. Oh, it tingles all through that. Yeah. That's, that's healing, right? Like yeah. uh, just releasing what no longer serves. And, and, yeah. and the most powerful part of that is the audience or the reader is healed in the process. Hundred percent, man. It's 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 a it's a pretty powerful thing, you know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, magic, Manny. Uh, I never know where we're going to head in these chats, and and got to be honest, when when I knew about your story and the fact that you know we we're going to touch on that idea of the the thought of of actually ending someone else's life. But I always marvel at the at the magic that comes out from from other people's stories and and the the realizations that, that I get and that the, the my guest gets as well. So thank you so much for sharing and uh, yeah, I, I appreciate I appreciate you sharing. I appreciate you and and uh, you're doing awesome work in this world, brother. Thank you, man. It was an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you too, Ian. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code Podcast. 
Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.